Welcome to the OCRWC podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by coach, elite athlete, and head of USOCR, Ian Hosick. We talk about his recent stellar performance at the OCR World Championships, what happens when his athletes catch him up, and what's the deal with the National Federation? All right, Ian, welcome to the OCRWC podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. My pleasure. So we're a couple of days out from OCRWC 2023, and that was an amazing weekend for you results-wise. Yeah, uh, it worked out quite well. I was very happy with uh, starting it off on Friday. That kind of surprised me for having such speed on the 3K Mm. and then carried that confidence throughout the weekend. And I was actually more confident for the 15K race um, than I was for, say, the 3K. I was initially not even going to race it very hard. And just go out to practice and get on some obstacles. But I'm happy I did, <laughs> as it worked out very well. I think the 3K results were a little bit of a surprise to people. Like, in a way, they were and they weren't. So we had Rylan in first place, which is amazing. I love Rylan. And he's very good. But I, after his injury that he's had in the last year, I wasn't expecting him to see on a podium. Uh, Manuel Defoe, I was really hoping to see up there because he's been doing so well this year in the 3K Spartan series. And he's when I spoke to him, he said he was aiming for it. Um, and then you took second place. And I think, you know, uh, uh, with any predictions that happened before, I'm not sure anybody would have put those three down in that order. I don't know if they would have put the three down in general. Um, I think Rylan and Manuel, but I'm kind of the dark horse in that group. Uh, Rylan always shows up with a very high level of fitness. And I think he's been able to string some running together, but Mm. uh, his cross training has been really high. Um, And so he's been able to carry that fitness. And that's the 3K is a little bit easier as long as you have that speed, uh, which you can get... um, fairly easily you don't have to put hours and hours and hours in on trails to get that whereas the 15k is a little bit more geared towards those longer runs which i don't think he's been doing a ton of um and then manuel's been showcasing his ever since he started the spartan series early in the year for the 3k um and doing so well there consistently and then showing up to this i don't think anyone was surprised to see him on the podium um Mm. i Based on his post, that was was his goal as well. So it's really cool Absolutely. to see him. I mean, he did well. Uh, uh, Manuel did well on the fifteen k last year. He was fourth, so you know he's got he's got the skills within him. And I was happy to see him there. But I mean, there were there were a few you talk about. It's easy to get the speed up, to get the uh, to have the success on the three k. There was some criticism before and afterwards, actually, about the three k that it wasn't a true OCRWC three k, and the obstacles weren't quite enough what's your opinion on that so i mean i i'm pretty darn good at obstacles but i'm not like the best i would say rylan and uh leon and atkins are all and kempson and sean are all better at obstacles (laughs) than i am so i do lose some time on the obstacles not a lot but it's noticeable and i think that's in my opinion the race that's where how rylan won um he put several seconds into me on school valley and then also did the same on drop zone so even though there may not have been enough it still did or not not enough but there wasn't as many in years past there still mm-hmm. was changes made in the race because of those obstacles which i thought kind of showcased that it was important um and even then i it's i don't know what happened in many of the other races besides the women's race in which we mm-hmm. had that very very exciting oh my gosh amazing which was an obstacle that caused the finish. Like yes. Nicole put so much time back into Lindsay on just the last like quarter mile um, in the obstacles. She had better swings. And then also on that final A-frame cargo is part of the reason she was able to get that victory. So mm-hmm. I think even though there is a criticism, they did still play a very large role. Um, I think it was and I had spoke with, I haven't spoken with Garfield, but I'm assuming based on course layout, it was challenging to get some of those obstacles in the locations they had originally planned on. Yeah, absolutely. It was, as I arrived, it was the Tuesday I arrived on site and we kind of looked at the course and it was, I know for the athletes, they loved the 15K. I would say for the athletes, the 15K was amazing. For media, it was difficult. 
uh, because yes. things were not so much in the event village as they usually are. And yeah, he just, he really struggled. The team struggled with the location of um, where they were because when they visited, uh, there was a lot more snow and things looked flatter. And you might go, well, of course they should be, you know, they're not going to be flat. It's a ski resort. But just these little inclines that were just slightly more than they expected caused the mix-up of the obstacles at the end and fitting stuff in. Like, I thought it was an absolutely beautiful location. Hated the way my lungs felt. Wasn't keen yes. on how dry it was, but it was a gorgeous location to be in. But yeah, it seemed really, really tricky for the layout. Uh, but it didn't seem to hinder, like I say, the 15K people seemed to love that. There was a lot of positivity after that, which is nice because people don't often go for the positivity route. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I've been, I've seen a lot of the feedback um, and it's interesting to see the different viewpoints. And I think it's very valuable to take them into consideration and not necessarily go full steam on any one thing, but really listen to all of them, see where and how we can improve because I know that's something you guys really value is getting the feedback and trying to build the best product for everyone while still working within the parameters you have. We do. And we say to people, please come and tell us, you know, if, if people are just unnecessarily rude, that's one thing. But when people have really valuable feedback, the thing is, we don't run we don't run the race. So from the guys who are podium, podiuming to the ones who are doing the charity course, all of the feedback matters. And it's important to make sure you're hitting the right note for everyone. And yeah, if we're not running it, we, we don't really know how it feels or how it flows necessarily. I do always say to Adrian, because he is very concerned, which is one of the reasons why the event is how it is about getting things right for people. And I do just say, you know, you're not going to please everyone. So you just need to make sure you are making the decision which you think is in the best interest of the athletes and the event and the sport. And if you are doing that, at least you know when there's criticism, you've done the best you can. But yeah, and this is, no, I agree. And this is something that I often try and distinguish for individuals is elite athletes or the people racing and getting on the podiums for overall stuff mm. are going to have drastically different opinions and viewpoints on the race course itself than, say, the charity racers of people are going out just for fun. Mm. Uh, a nice example is the barbed wire barbed wire mm. really serves absolutely no purpose for an elite race um mm. but it is fun to be like nitty-gritty and like challenging type thing for more recreational racers um mm. like oh yeah i crawled under barbed wire it was a cool experience <laughs> the pros have done that i don't know how many times i have huge scars on my back from it i have mm. a very large laceration from your guys's race this past weekend Ooh. uh and it you can still get the same obstacle challenge and difficulty by just having like non-barbed wire you can just put wire there yeah um, i mean we had that for the um sandbag it wasn't barbed wire was it it was just yeah it was the it was the stretchy ropes and the stretchy ropes are an entirely different obstacle i would argue because mm. they do stretch so most of us just walk under them and lift them up <laughs> um which is great that's a different challenge but I, even for the barbed wire like you can just take the barbs out and yeah. it's still, you can't, it's like very stiff. It doesn't move. It'll still catch on things. Like if you have a fanny pack or a backpack mm. or even, I mean, women's hair all the time. <laughs> so just without creating like medical issues. Yeah, that, I agree. I agree with you on that. And we've seen yeah. that a lot this year and we've seen it being quite uh, impacting athletes, events and bodies quite a lot. Yes. And yeah, there's no need to injure people people end up with torn hands and stuff from events and that'll be down to a multitude of reasons but causing damage yeah I, i'm 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 on the athlete side with the barbed wire well but th this is also like the elite athlete viewpoint and it's not mm. necessarily the recreational athlete like the recreational athlete is going out there to have like a cool life experience sometimes that means going through more dangerous or like medically dangerous situations thus the barbed wire and so i can mm. i can see their viewpoint it's just very challenging to accommodate both of those uh race experiences in mm. like one well i guess for an event like ours where it's so small you can't do a rebuild between uh yeah. between athletes but then i suppose in an event like ours you should just assume that most people are competing because even if they're age groupers they're still competing and they're still going to be racing against the guy next to them it's just going to be a lot slower than the ones who are in um, elite so that yes. it's still going to be the same risk issue uh going ahead in terms of going on the barbed wire so yeah and I, I mean i would i would assume 
almost the vast majority of your ticket sales come from either the pro or age group and like very mm -hmm. few come from the like open journeyman or the charity event. Yeah. 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 So moving then on to the 15K, we touched on that very quickly. Uh, the 15K, you again came second in the 15. So you, you apart from Annie, who came third and third both days, uh, you were the other one to keep the same place second and second up across both distances uh was that was that expected were you kind of what happened tell me about it yeah i was less surprised on that one or i was expecting a better performance on the 15k than i would say the 3k mm. um, and i knew my fitness was in a good position and i really had a good race strategy in terms of starting a bit more conservatively and then working into the races as it progressed. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Tyler Veerman and I believe Fernando took it out fairly strong and they held the lead till Gibbons. And that's when both of them started struggling on um, Tyler Veerman struggled on Gibbons for a few minutes and that mm. brought him back. And then Fernando also had been struggling on some of the obstacle proficiency. He got through them, but just took a little bit longer. Mm. That's where uh, Ryan Atkins, myself, and Leon all capitalized and mm. moved into those top three spots and maintained them for the rest of the race. Mm. Ryan and I had quite the exciting race for the yes. entire 90 minutes with being in striking distance up until probably the last 10 to 15 minutes in which he put that um, minute gap into me. Mm. But still only a minute. Still it's only not, a minute. It's not, it's not huge, is it? No, not at all. And I mean, at a certain point, a few kilometers from the finish, I had the idea. I was like, oh, there's only like a little bit left, not realizing it was uh. a few kilometers. So I put on a decent surge to catch him and I knocked down 15 to 30 seconds over the course of a few minutes and caught him um, wow. going into the sandbag. And then that is where he decided to punish my <laughs> course knowledge which was, oh, there's going to be a decent amount of course left. I can just steadily ratchet it up while well, you had kind of used your extra burner fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, he that's where he put them in into me. But it was still very tight. Um, and I was very confident no one was going to catch us because I think we had put several minutes into the field at mm -hmm. that point. Yeah, you, you, you finished quite a far way ahead of Leon, like six minutes. I think it was five or six minutes, but that's, still, I mean, that's a decent amount for that course, but it's still not like. It's it's enough to, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't he, seconds yes. behind you. Uh, so you had, exactly. So despite having yeah. used your booster, you still had some breathing room. Yeah. Um, which, and then Leon, I mean, I'll probably talk to him at some point because I was super excited about him getting third place, completely unexpected. He's a short course athlete kind of guy. And, you know, also comes from a very flat country. A lot of people had been talking about the elevation uh, being such a problem. Uh, and in fact, Ryan, who I spoke to, Ryan Kempson, who I spoke to before the event, he was like, nope, nope, I'm not running against people like Tyler who live that high and train that high. But for someone like Leon, yeah, he spent a couple of weeks uh, in the country, you know, at high elevation, getting used to it. I hate saying that. I always get it wrong. Acclimatizing. Acclimatizing. Acclimating. Acclimating, acclimatizing. <laughs> Those are all similar. They're all synonyms. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was not like an idiot. Um, but, you know, he does live in a flat place. And it was, how much do you think the elevation played a part in the results this uh, last weekend? I think it played a significant part. I think you have to weigh both fitness and el elevation um, and altitude. Not equally, I would say you're going to first look at fitness to like see who will the top contenders be. And then you would have that kind of cherry on top of being acclimatized um, mm -hmm. and ready to handle that. Although I live, I'm also one of the altitude people and I live at 6,000 feet and the race started at nine. So nine mm -hmm. is also high for me and I live at altitude. So it's mm -hmm. not like I got a free pass on that. Um, I certainly didn't feel it as much as say Ryan Atkins or some of the people who coming from sea level, um, but it wasn't like my resting heart rate was elevated. I did notice breathing was a bit more strained. And Leon going out to Colorado for a few weeks will definitely have that little cherry on top boost that mm. um, you would expect. And you can get the the longer you spend there up to about like probably 
five to six weeks and then it's not really um fully there but for the most part it's diminishing returns after about three to four weeks and that's where you'll get most of the gains so him being up high was was very beneficial and also a small plug for myself is i'm his running coach as of this year um, mm. and have, so we'd been talking about getting him prepped for that and some runs specifically to work on his climbing ability and carry strength um and that really showcased this weekend as well which was awesome because him getting on an ocrwc podium for the 15k was fantastic <laughs> and i think he came in fourth no he must have got fourth fourth or fifth i believe he was right off the podium fifth. on uh, friday fifth okay i think yeah. it wasn't ryan atkins fourth i think ryan atkins was fourth yeah and so he's he was right there and just he felt like he wasn't necessarily ready to rock on Friday in terms of legs weren't responding and then everything showed up for the rest of the weekend, which was cool. That's so cool. So how does it feel as a coach racing against people that you train? Because it happens quite often in this sport. And we've seen it. I mean, we've certainly seen it in the UK where some athletes are starting to overtake their coaches and take their podium spots. I'm like, <laughs> what is that feeling? Yeah, so it actually depends on the mentality of the coach, because um, often most coaches are also high level athletes themselves. Mm. So if they're an athlete first and a coach second, many of them may not coach actual elite males. Um, there's some people in the trail world as well as OCR world who won't coach other elite men if they're competing against them or women. Uh-huh. Other note, um, just because they don't feel comfortable necessarily <laughs> they may not, they may feel a conflict of interest or Mm -hmm. um, they want to not get people to their level or take away those podium spots for sponsors, you name it. And then there's the other side where there'll be a a coach first and an athlete second, which is the category I fall into. I love racing, but I love coaching um, even more. And it is actually my goal to get athletes to beat me. Like that is something <laughs> I strive for because that, that showcases my coaching abilities. Absolutely. Um, I've had that in the past uh, with several athletes who have <laughs> kicked my butt in certain races. And that, I feel like that's a, a testament to my coaching more than anything. Um, obviously the athlete's ability to train and their genetics and everything else. But I also, that's something I always go for is I want athletes beating me out of podium spots or for us to occupy the top two spots, whether they're ahead of me or I'm ahead of them. That, that is like my goal. So getting Leon or like Leon coming in third um, and I'm coming in second in the 15k was a really cool special moment for me. Um, It it is really cool and it does I mean Leon is fantastic and he works really hard and we all know I adore him but it says a lot for your skills as a coach that he podiumed on the 15k which no shade to Leon I didn't expect because he is a short as we said, he, he excels in the short course or the shorter distances and with that excellent grip and you know the speed. So yeah, that says a lot. So that's a good advertisement. Good weekend in terms of podium spots and a good weekend in terms of advertisement for you. Yeah, and I also had, I had a number of athletes there. I had um, many age groupers and then also I coach Ashley, Ashley Heller and she got eight oh, nice, in, yeah. in overall. So like I, I, I had a great successful weekend of my own accomplishments, but often I see my athletes' successes. Um, I put almost more value on those than I do my own, which is, <laughs> is part of the reason I can't ever succeed at being like a truly amazing athlete um, <laughs> as a limitation. Well, not necessarily limitation. As long as you're happy with what you're doing and your goals, you know, everyone has different goals. Uh, funnily enough, when we were watching the podiums and me and Adrian were watching, it was actually the 60 plus and like these really fit guys, these men who were just in incredible shape. And he was like, God, I can't believe what good shape they are. And, and they're so, you know, they're older than us. And I was like, I like to think there's something I'm good at, though, that maybe they can't do. He did just kind of look at me and went, nah. <laughs> but, you know, I, we all I have different goals. Um, yeah, goals and skill sets. Like we're not all going to be you need to have a genetic makeup and the drive and the mental state and like stability. And there's a lot of things that go into being like a high level athlete more than just like genetics and being able to train. Mm. Um, there's like having low life stress and <laughs> all of the components um, have to align, but also like we all have our own individual skill sets and that doesn't mean just because you're not necessarily a top racer doesn't mean you're not phenomenal at race organizing or podcasting or 
being a parent, um, any of those things, I, people, I, we put athletes on pedestals, but then mm. forget about our accomplishments. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> it is weird though. It's weird working in an industry where like, I like sport and I do sport, but I'm not, I, I'm, I'm of the lazy mentality. Like I just don't have that grit within me to be able to push the way that some people can physically uh which has annoyed me because i wanted to and then it came to me and i was like no i can't i can't do it so sometimes there's like a little bit of guilt but i'm like do you know what we all succeed in our own areas um as i said i think of the weekend it's like we all get a medal uh which yeah. that's what it sounds like but no we do so that's cool so overall how was the event for you what was the feel like what did you enjoy what did you not enjoy what what yeah what did you what did you think yeah, I really loved the event. Um, it's always I didn't attend last year's, uh, but I attended two years. No, I've I've done many over the years, and OCRWC has always got a very like unique energy. I feel mm. everyone's really psyched on the obstacles. Um, people try really hard. I mean, woman woman was on triumph for hours until she mm. finally got it, and I think the celebration behind that was so cool. Yeah, I got a video of one woman doing it. It may be the same woman, I'm not sure. Uh, and she finally got through and she was, it was almost primal, the noises she was making. Yes, and then she climbed so. over the top and her partner kind of jumped on it. It was, it was so lovely. And it's so important for me to highlight those things and the whole team as well to highlight those things as well. Because in fact, there was, a, I think we spoke about this at the weekend when you hopped on the mic with me. Somebody made a comment about, oh, a championship shouldn't be this way. People shouldn't have these opportunities, but... I think they should because that's where the that's where the real accomplishments come from for people is that breaking through and and having that grit that I just said that I don't have and achieving something whether it's just one obstacle and that's why they love it because they have that opportunity rather than just like oh well never mind I'll take a penalty or I'll you know do something else and carry on they it requires a certain start set of, you know spirit yeah, and I, I totally agree. And I also think that goes back to the point of like the different races for the different athlete styles. Like she's out there giving it her all, whereas we're like, if you don't get through that obstacle in like three seconds, you're going to lose the race type thing. Mm. Um, so that I think it, holding both of those is important and celebrating both accomplishments um, is very important as well. I think just being able to understand where the different mentalities are. Because um, hmm. that woman obviously wasn't going to win the race, but she was still competing um, hmm. within her age group or training or whatever. Um, and I think that showcases it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just a unique race environment and a unique set of individuals who are all just so excited by obstacle course racing hmm. and kind of really bringing it together and having a fun event. Um, that is everything we love about the sport and uh, <laughs> continuing that on. Mm. I was going to say some things I didn't like was mm. the food availability, which I'm sure may not be the first time you guys heard this, but mountain food or at least mammoth's uh, food mm -hmm. was, is quite expensive. Very um, expensive. As, as ski resorts are notoriously expensive, but even in town. So having food trucks, if that was available or different food options mm -hmm. instead of like the cafeteria, I think that'd be room for improvement. Um, and I think the festival area could have used a little boost. Uh, it was, I'm, and I, again, I'm sure working space is a little bit more challenging, but, mm. um, having like the merchandise kind of separate, uh, there was a tent out there, but the vast majority was inside. And then there mm. wasn't a lot of booths or tents to kind of draw people in to get them to stick around. And, mm. uh, and that, that's the same with food. All of those things kind of leave the festival area a little bit, um, some room for improvement there wasn't a huge i'll agree with you on that there wasn't a huge amount of space or opportunities or reasons to really hang around outside uh like i would go out while i was working but i'd go out a bit and then be like oh there's not really anything for me to do here like maybe drinks outside or i did we did speak earlier in the week when everyone was setting up and the room where registration was there was a general consensus that this would have been a really cool room to have merch in because it was really big and bright and the whole setup of everything would have kind of completely changed and people could have gone out the back doors directly onto the course. But then Garth was like, again, when he did his site visit, that room was divided up into lots of small rooms 
and he had no idea that that whole space was available they're like yeah we'll try and do something and then when he got there he's like well it's too late now to change all the plans but that would have been really nice to kind of do your reg and then walk through a big bright room with merch and then have those windows and the two doors that kind of led outside um i'll agree with you on that i I think probably that's probably down to two things one the space available and two the spartan team because on production that's more where ocrwc leaned into spartan Mm -hmm. is making use of the production side and it was they did an amazing job i'm not going to criticize any of the crew on what they did but they're not working with their usual template and um, mm-hmm. i think that was a bit tricky somebody one of the guys said who's quite high up in the build crew is like we're just carnies we just drive from town mm-hmm. to town building fun fairs for adults and they don't change it's the same thing we we know what we're doing you know it's a well-oiled machine mm-hmm. and this was a different yeah. machine but with our own vendors and our own things so yeah, I absolutely accept that there was a the festival village could have been more exciting, more tempting to keep people in, even though not necessarily terribly different from OCRWCs in the past. I think the building and everything didn't lend itself to uh, to to that feeling of of making people want to stick around necessarily in there. Yeah, or I mean, I feel like, and I don't know what Mammoth feels on this, but utilizing the parking lot like that space seemed pretty good as well. Mm. Um, and I don't, I, again, I don't know how limited parking was, but some stuff out there could have been like a beer garden with <laughs> like a food truck or two. Um, yeah, been cute. And then have like viewing of the hundred meter type stuff uh, mm. nearby. And that would, that helps. Um, like you put beer next to a sporting event, people usually hang around. I'm not sure what Joe feels about beer, but you know, we are OCRWC, so. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. <laughs> I, they usually they've always had beer at their races, so I don't Have think they? it's like a, yeah, it's it's never been a mate. You usually got a beer ticket with your registration. Yeah, Coors used to be events. a sponsor, didn't they? I don't know in the exactly, US. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. So, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. yeah, the food is tricky. I'm vegan, and there was one option I could eat, and I got so bored of it. <laughs> the, <laughs> the fries were great, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly tricky. There were there were definitely some things that made the venue less easy i don't know if you ever went to stratton but that was a really nice venue with everything really close by you go to stratton yeah it's and and it's very convenient (laughs) it's very convenient but you know yeah there's there's always talks about how things can be improved and this is again this is the feedback that we want because i don't know a lot of people see i think we had this conversation again at the weekend unnecessary criticism is pointless and just offends people but hey this is good but it could be better in this way is an alternative viewpoint that someone might not have had like i wouldn't think of putting i don't really drink not i'm not against it i don't not drink i just never think about it i would never dream of putting a beer garden somewhere because i don't do that tea yes i would put tea out well they could serve tea i mean it could be hot (laughs) it's a beer garden but they also serve hot drinks or like (laughs) depending on the liquor lice you can do hot mixed drinks yeah um, which also a great thing like a hot toddy which is like a whiskey mm. thing um with warm water sometimes can be really nice if you're not which if the warm. weather had been the way it had been during the build mm-hmm, we would exactly. have needed because it was snowing it was cloudy it was foggy and then all of a sudden it became the hottest ocrwc i think on record i had to buy shorts i had a mm-hmm. ski jacket hiking boots dry robe gloves like i had so many warm weather clothes and then i had to buy shorts because it got so hot it was I'm crazy not complaining. well i did have it was we did run and there was ice on the 15k there was ice on the obstacles <gasps> so that no. did we did see some cold weather um, that must have been really difficult to deal with then because you had the water quite early on which was a huge point of contention um obviously yeah. leading up to the event with the with the dunk wall people were very angry about that uh but you still hit it quite early in the morning so yeah so it wasn't i mean thankfully the temperatures weren't as bad as they could have been because that could have been a very large problem and i know Mm. athletes still struggled with it but the ice on the obstacles wasn't too bad there wasn't anything that i would say wasn't overly challenging so like small grips or like vertical things Mm. um the rope climb thankfully wasn't just slick with ice or anything like that the pads were still frozen over but it's crazy um the low rig did have ice on it, and thankfully that wasn't <clears throat> a major 
game changer, which it can be. Um, mm. Putting ice on any hanging obstacles can often be quite the challenge. <laughs> then in terms of dressing, I mean, I saw Leon went out with a little coat and then he took it off and other athletes kind of did the same. But if you're starting off, because the weather changed dramatically in Mammoth, I started off the broadcast kind of wearing gloves and shivering. And then by the time it finished, I was sweltering and was changing into shorts and a T-shirt. So how, even just that is a challenge in itself, how to dress for those dramatic changes when you're also moving at high speeds. Yes, absolutely. And it depends on clothing choice and layering is often a really good option because you can shed those really lightweight layers. Um, I went with like a windbreaker vest, so it doesn't hold water whatsoever and really mm. holds heat. However, it does have tons of ventilation and I can unzip it and open it up as needed. So the start, I made sure to try and keep as much body temp in as possible. Mm. And then later in the race, when it got sunny and got warmer, I opened it up and let it breathe a lot more. Um, and I, that's also coming from experience of running in the mountains a lot and knowing my own body <laughs> and what clothing I wear when. So um, that experience is very helpful. And often people don't necessarily get to test that out to going to mountain events such as Mammoth. Mm. Well, I think as well with being on the mountain, and I don't care how many times I spoke about it, I always will. The amount of people getting sunburned, especially on the Sunday, because the it was it was windy and it felt cold. I was like, no, don't, you're gonna you're gonna die, guys. You're gonna die. It's still really burning hot. Um, kind of dangerous. Yeah. I mean, our UV index can get up to like seven or eight or nine in the summer. Um you're just closer to the sun. <laughs> so you're that much higher in the sun. Can, even though it may be cooler, it does it does burn quite quite quickly. I always uh, laugh when people say that because it just sounds so unlikely. Well, you're close to the sun. You're not that much close to the sun, but yeah, yeah I guess actually you are. But <laughs> yeah. it's in the grand scheme of things, it's minuscule. Like that, from zero to nine thousand feet is basically a drop of sand. Mm. Um, unlike the actual scale to the distance to the sun, it doesn't even register. But then when you think about how much of an impact it's having on your body, you're like, actually, this is quite quite a lot of distance because, I mean, I hated it. I was walking upstairs. I, I normally run upstairs because that's, you know, that's what you do. And I'd run up there and be like, oh, God, I've got to stop doing it. I can't handle it. And I'd get to the top just like, hi. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, it does. There is. There's less oxygen overall due to pressures. Um, but yes, it de you'll definitely feel it. Um since you just and the people who are acclimated just have more red blood cells to deal with that um, oh i have i have a really crappy uh amount of red blood cells anyway my body doesn't work in certain ways like i don't have a thermostat my uh yeah well all, all those things oh, that no. make you work so really well. at a disadvantage <laughs> yeah so like people think i'm joking when i say this i've the stuff which I'm not going to get into but basically the best way to explain it is my thermostat doesn't work so my mm -hmm body doesn't work too well with changes in temperatures which is why talking about I, I mean I'm British so I love talking about the weather but yeah. I can't really adjust to temperature changes very well um and yeah my red blood cells also kind of suck a bit that yeah. was just screwed there that that is definitely and that may be one of the reasons like you just got some people get the like great genetic hand and then others get dealt a little bit less of a good one and you would be on the less good one side <laughs> oh no sounds like you've come to terms with oh no <laughs> i don't like that but fair well that's just i mean that's like you you say you have like you're lacking the grit aspect but mm. your level of grit may be at such a different one as opposed to other people so like what you're experiencing may be on like a nine or a ten and what you have to deal with where some other people might be like an eight or a nine I've always uh, wondered about that question i find that really interesting in terms of like wouldn't it be great if you could kind of measure it comparatively and I've always thought about it in sport you know say if like I used to weightlift and I really like it but I was pretty terrible at it it was not my natural sport and there would be people who would train with injuries and I was like ah, I can't do that like this hurts no I, I'm I'm not gonna do it I'm far too sensible but I've always yeah, wanted would it be... common sense goes a long way in that one as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it would be great to be able to actually measure you know on a scale what people are feeling just to see that's more of a personal thing like am I just you know am I really weak or I don't know 
Yeah, they've done some studies with that and specifically with like um, birth pain or like that type of thing. They'll hook mm. male individual and like they've shown man men have much, much lower pain tolerance than women. Okay. Well, um, I mean, I did give birth without any pain relief and it was horrendous, but I did that. So I'll, I'll take that as a win. Yeah. And see, I don't think I could do that, period. I mean, I would not, I don't, I would definitely probably want pain relief. I, I mean, I wanted it. it. They just didn't bring it in time. God bless the NHS. Oh, no. yeah. I, asked, I shook my fist at the sky after a while and was like, where's yeah. the anesthetist? Like with someone else. I was like, but she's yeah. had it long enough. But um, they, they've, they've hooked men up to electrodes like on their abdomen um, mm. and basically shocked them to simulate childbirth. And they, it, <laughs> they don't handle it well compared, <laughs> comparatively to women. I mean, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it sucks, but it's that they do have some stuff. They have That's done studies at um, pain tolerance comparisons and how on general men are worse than women. But um, I don't know how many professional athletes have done that. So I'd, I would be interested to see what that would look like from a male professional athlete. I remember hearing something about John Alban's lactic acid threshold and I can't, you would probably be able to fill in the gaps there. Is it higher? Or is it basically he's, he's got a lot more tolerance, which is why he can push so hard and still barely look like he's trying? Uh, it, de it depends. I would probably say, based on that information, it's very close to his actual max effort. Mm. Um, so the higher it is, or the, the closer it is to his VO2 max or like max effort, period is going to be like greater than other individuals. So he can work really close to his max effort. And then you also have like, you look at other sports athletes, such as like football, American football players mm. um, who have a really high max output, but that threshold is very far away from it. So they can work <laughs> above their threshold and do uh -huh. really high loads and efforts, um, but they can't do it for very long. Versus if you try and made Albin do the load of a professional American football player that he just can't do it, period. <laughs> uh, so it's it's different skill sets and different athletes. Um, and you'll see that with marathoners as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the, the best marathoners have very high thresholds in relation to their VO2 max. Mm. So when it comes to training people and being a coach, is this something that you, how do you work this out? Is this something you need to kind of work with people? How do you know how far to push them and how much to push them? Because I guess you do a lot of distance coaching probably. Yeah, I'm a distance coach or endurance coach is the terminology I use. And it's, it's different for everyone. Like I'm, and I, I work with my athletes to discuss like what their schedule looks like, what they can handle um if we get to a certain point and they're like nope this is it i can't do anymore we're like all mm. right so we'll hold here or we d we talk about what races are coming up and if we need to like kind of peek over that edge of volume and try and get that last little bit for a big race or if they have a lot of work life stress um then we can tone it back and kind of shift around to make sure they don't overdo it mm. uh because I don't just coach professional athletes or elite level athletes. I also coach age groupers, I coach recreational runners um, mm -hmm. and everyone in between. So there's no one set formula, but it's finding what works for their schedule um, and their life and their level of stress and family time and everything. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I know myself and just other regular humans who like to exercise the, the benefit of having a coach or a trainer or somebody is that they have that ability to push you a little bit harder. But I've had people who have just pushed me too hard. And I've just been like, nah. you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's hard to find a balance. Yeah. That's something because if you push too hard, it can lead to injury or illness um, or burnout. There's a lot of things. And it's, to be honest, it's much, much easier to push an athlete. Like I can give an athlete a program and be like, you need to do this for a month and mm. I will, I, I will break them. Like <laughs> it's <laughs> easy to break an athlete as opposed to progress them properly and have them enjoy the process as well as getting fit um, and showcasing progression and mm. uh, gains. Well, it's, it's like the old thing with that. I say all the time about designing a course it's, really easy to make a course that no one can complete yes <laughs> yeah that's very true and you'll you'll see this methodology a lot with like collegiate or high school run coaches and athletes mm -hmm. 
where they have a large group of individuals and they'll just throw volume at them and be like, the ones who get through it will be really fast. And then everyone else will come out with small injuries or major injuries. Mm. Uh, and that's, I, we're slowly getting away from that mentality. Um, but the shotgun approach and then like three BBs will come out, uh, <laughs> really great athletes, but the rest will hit a wall or miss. It's, it's kind of like the China method. Every child has a speciality that's just handed to them and some of them will be good and some of them won't and good luck mm -hmm. to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I went off on a bit of a tangent there. Tangent <laughs> that's okay. I apologize. Uh, you do not need to apologize to me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's um let's just talk a bit about you in general and OCR in general, which I always I always like to kind of talk to the athletes, the people involved in the sport about what they think is going on where they want to see things going and just kind of get the general viewpoint of um where we are currently in the sport yeah we're at kind of a unique stage um i'm heavily involved in usa ocr so i have kind of more insight and mm. a different perspective than many of the other athletes uh so it's the sport i think is kind of in a small decline from where it was kind of mm. in its heyday like 2016 through 2019 when you saw some really big numbers a lot of money in the sport a lot of mm. vendors and sponsors um and so OCR as a whole is kind of on the low side or it's not that un unchecked growth that we've seen in the past but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's kind of going back to its roots and you're seeing which organizations are really valuing uh athlete feedback and trying to put on OCR events in the US at least. Um, I can't speak too much internationally. Mm. I don't know what a lot of the organizations and race brands are doing, yeah, but yeah. in the US, they are, we are starting to see growth. Savage is slowly growing, which um, there's been some lessons from history of like Battle Frog growing mm. too fast and expanding and then shutting down. And then we've also seen Spartan do some aggressive growth and not be able to maintain it. Um, when kind of the numbers die down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing that. Um, and then that's more on like the core roots OCR side. And then we're seeing this, the, the sports side, I would say, which is the federations um, on the national level, as well as international level. Today's a unique day. We just had pentathlon get put forward for the 2028 games in Los Angeles. Uh, with the fifth, fifth discipline of pentathlon being a short course OCR. Um, I believe it's 65 meters wow. is what they'll have. Uh, and that is almost through. There's like a one, there's one boat that still has to happen. Um, from my understanding, that's kind of just like a procedural thing, but you never know. Mm. So that will be OCR's debut into the Olympics under a different sport, under pentathlon. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of differing opinions on that. I still am working through my feelings. I think it's really cool to see it showcased. Um, it's not necessarily what I would love to see showcased at the Olympics for obstacle course racing, but it's a good start. Uh, and hopefully this will draw more people in and interest to help grow these other events um, and get breathe some life uh, and numbers back into OCR and help it uh, get back to those bigger numbers that we've seen in the past. So is that uh, your interest in having a format of OCR in the Olympics? No, I actually don't really care if OCR is in the Olympics. Okay, good, because neither do Personally. I. Personally. I don't really understand um, that, but okay. <laughs> I, I support it, um, but my feelings is I would rather, my work with USA OCR mm. at the US level is trying to create safe and fair events within the US. That's good. Um, so safe being like there's good insurance coverage for mm -hmm. athletes as well as obstacles aren't going to fall apart while you're on mm -hmm. them or you jump into a body of water and there's a sharp metal object buried in there. Things like that um, for the safety aspect. And then FAIR really having a higher level of standard for technical officials on obstacles. Um, and I know that it's challenging, uh, but really having trained officials, much like you see at... Mm. Um, CrossFit games and uh, 
they'll have be very well versed in every obstacle or their obstacles rules as well as the rules in general um so athletes if the ref makes a call the athletes don't really have to worry about it they'll know that the ref is right and they don't need to argue um and also doping so like mm. we don't see much doping in our sport but that's mm. we also aren't doing testing so we don't well, know we have always do. tested um you have, this year you did not but that's probably no. a smart thing i think it's probably also maybe a money thing it, it's um, it is extremely it's expensive. expensive it is extremely expensive however if you're holding a world championship or um a race that has a decent prize purse mm. i think athletes would prefer to see you take some of the prize money and just be like we're going to put it towards doping i mean uh, say that <laughs> yeah but i mean that's something we i don't believe any of the top athletes were doping adrian but... is huge on 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 testing and yes. so you know it's something he's always we even did a podcast about it and spoke to the guys who do the testing so it's something mm -hmm. that's important for the legit legitimacy of the event for sure and for the sport and i agree with that um, yeah and, and it, hopefully it that just expensive. comes back next year yeah and i i it's it's that's something like we're for the usa ocr races like when you go compete you would like the top athletes will be tested or a handful of the top athletes not every single one but mm. um that's what my goal is to create that safe and spare safe and fair sport environment and then help develop ocr as a whole um from also like youth and then all the other stuff from national federation level which would be helping youth development uh the national team but um really create a more uh federate um a federation oriented sport that mm. people can see legitimacy like you said um yeah i mean there, the, there are aspects of that i agree with and when it's spoken about in that sense, it makes sense. And, you know, I've spoken to James Burson in the UK a lot, and he sounds very similar to you and is very authentic and has these uh, opinions about what will develop the sport. But my sticky point is then when it goes to the level above, there's, there's a disconnect between what you guys are doing for the country federations that I know, I don't know all of them, and then where it goes from there. And it doesn't seem that that ethos doesn't seem to carry through to the high levels and the events put on by the high levels and the behavior by the high levels. So how do you align with that? Uh, we align with them with some of their rules and regulations and like technical officials um, and coaching certifications. And, mm. but I will say like the national federations are not the international federation. But um, they work together they support each other i will mm -hmm. say that they don't they they work together in hosting races and like world series events and providing feedback to one another but they operate independently mm. so we usa ocr is not world obstacle mm. uh, nor is world obstacle usa ocr mm. we have we have our own board we have our own uh bylaws we have our own goals and they don't often align as you've seen. <laughs> um, so, so we're working towards what we feel will help better the sport in the U S not at the international level. And the international level is feeling what they're doing, working towards, actually, I can't speak on that. Actually. I, I don't know their, their nitty gritty goals. Um, mm. From my perspective, as an individual outside of USA OCR or World Obstacle, it seems like they're working towards getting obstacle course racing in the Olympics, um, either be it pentathlon or a standalone event as their end goal. Mm. And what form that takes is may differ from what the national federations believe. Does that cause problems for having for getting support for the national federation? It can. Sometimes, uh, I would say we, no national federation has really run into that roadblock yet because it is still so new as well as when world obstacle or the international level wants to create events, it's going to be for the international events side of things. So if we look at Belgium, um, the world championships in Belgium, just a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. that was a world level event and also partnered with 
the local Belgium Federation. So they did get a lot of support from World Obstacle, um, but they also did a lot of the heavy lifting from the Federation level. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think things like Belgium, what happened there and the quality of the event, and I can't say too much because it, it would sound too critical, uh, but I, I do feel like in the UK that certainly impacted support for the British Federation because they are kind of... it's. You know, it's separate ingredients, <laughs> but of the same recipe, if that makes sense. And it's it's yeah. hard to, you know, people support James, for example, because he's the first guy we've had, first person, whatever, in that position who is trustworthy. It's been badly led in the past by people who have really not done good things. And then he is a likable and uh, authentic and honest and good person who has uh, wants to do good things for the sport, but it's hard to support that when you then see, oh, but this is the event you're putting on, and you're really gonna, you're really gonna try and use the same name and try. You think this is okay, and this is what, this is what you're selling to people as being as being a benefit of a federation. It's hard to support it when you see that. I run into the exact same situation here in the u.s um, mm. there's been many different iterations of usaocr in the past and it's the same name over <laughs> an entirely new organization we like started from the ground up we applied uh -huh. for a new business license like everything's completely new minus the name mm. um, and i don't think it was necessarily management in the past specifically but some of the events they hosted and how they were done were put a very bad taste in people's mouths that I'm still yeah. trying to wash out I bet. and com communicate that it is a separate event and we are doing things differently. And we do want to listen to the community and move forward to help OCR as a whole. And we're not, we don't have ulterior motives. Mm. We just want to help the sport and create safe and fair events for everyone. I think uh, it's those ulterior motives that people are concerned about. Um, and also just, like say the quality of events, everybody, everybody thinks they know how to do it. And I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I've worked with OCRWC since 2017, but I couldn't put on an event. Uh, what, you know, Adrian and Garth and the race directors in the past do is, is magic. It's the amount of planning and knowledge and sense that needs to go into these events is huge, but people kind of think, oh, we can do this. And then you have events like we saw where there aren't enough toilets, which is hilarious because Two weeks previously, I'd done a podcast with someone talking about how I got into OCR. And I was like, oh, you know, in 2014, I was writing reviews about races, about like the parking and the toilets. And nobody needs to worry about that anymore. And then we have Belgium. <laughs> but yes. it's and none of this is easy. Yeah. But and I don't even think it was the number of toilets. I think it was the rate at which they were being cleaned, um, which is like because I noticed at your guys's event, they were cleaned every day between events. Um, mm. They were drained and cleaned, whereas... In Belgium, I don't think they had lined that up or it's, there was some miscommunication or something didn't go the way it should have been. But mm. um, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a small point, but you know, like it's one tiny jigsaw piece of, of putting is, stuff it has, on. It and... has very large cascading effects mm. like that, that people could have gotten sick from that environment, things like that. There are a number of, and it's, yes, it is a small jigsaw piece, but the puzzle is not complete without it. And not like I know what to do, not like I had to know, know how to run a perfect event, but um, I know there are some things that you really have to focus on, like parking and toilets and food, if it is a remote venue away from other, like a, a city place, um, mm -hmm. things along those lines. Yeah. And and I, like I say, I agree with the theory when it's put forward, you know, make things safer, have marshals to be funded, you know, I don't know how it would work in the UK. I'm not sure in other countries, but, you know, there would be more money in the sport to make it safer. But then part of me is just like, or oh, you could just make obstacles really, really simple where you don't need a 10 page rule book per obstacle so that somebody needs loads of training in order to understand one obstacle, which in itself is a beauty of great course design. True. But then you also I mean, we look at the 3K is a great example of that where you had simple obstacles or people felt uninspired or that you guys could have. And I know it's kind of based on like the location of the course mm. and not having the ability to put obstacles there but if you have simple simple obstacles you're going to get a lot of negative feedback on that this isn't ocr this is just a watered down spartan race things like that 
I mean, I, I think we've all heard before. <laughs> I, I do think some of the best obstacles out there are the simplest ones. Even like Ricochet is my favorite obstacle that's been designed just for its simplicity in terms of its rings, but in a way that suddenly makes it really difficult to do. That's really simple. What do you do? You get from one side to the other in the only way you can. You don't put any rules on there because you can only do one thing, which is, well, you're supposed to be able to do one thing, which is use the boards. I think the bands did move a bit over the weekend this time, but that's not happened before. But, you know, when it's, oh, well, you can't touch this bit and you have to do this and you have to do it in order. And no, you can't, you can't do that there. As an athlete, surely you want to just be going from A to B and getting through as fast as you can without having to think. Yes. But it also, I mean, you look at other sports is you have to know the rules. So like rugby or American football or ice hockey, like everyone who competes in those sports knows the rules. And even though there are some like weird rules, so like offsides in hockey, people also usually get confused on um, or like any one of the small, silly rules of American football. All of the athletes on the field know those rules and they've studied them. But so once those really... rules are set, those rules are set. We could say that about, let's say, OCRWC, for example, um, no chalk, no spikes, uh, no impeding somebody else when it's on a tee. You know, there are a set of rules that apply to the race as a whole. Mm -hmm. But in terms of individual obstacles, that would then mean, if that was the case, that the obstacles would be designed and would never really develop because then people are having to learn new rules every uh game yeah. basically and, and that's that's fair that's a very good point um is those rules do not change over time so i, I don't know but I, you have those differing opinions of or not differing opinions you hear the opinions that people want that obstacle innovation and new obstacle. Uh -huh. yeah um and i i agree that you still want to be able to get from point A to B in whatever fashion you can without like having some standard rules, like not using the scaffolding or trusses. Um, and then sometimes, but within those parameters, I feel like there's only so many things you can do given the holds mm. you have. Um, well, again, it comes down to, it's actually really difficult to make things really well. Like I've never come up with a, an obstacle that's been used. <laughs> it's yeah. But it's, but it's not easy to design a good, simple obstacle that's easy to build and transport and doesn't cost a fortune to make and that you can actually put into the ground because everywhere you go has different rules. So there are so many things to it. Um, that, that's, again, a side shoot talking about things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, and it, it kind of is a showcase on how challenging like a good solid course can be to build, which is, I think, a large compliment with how many great reviews we heard of the 15k um, mm. and 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 then the goal is next year make everyone as happy with the 15k and make them just as happy with the 3k and the 100 meters and the team event and yep. personally for me again i'll say it, unless someone's just being out and out mean it's so it's good to hear these things because you go right well and even if people are a bit negative my response always is well let's just show them how great we can be yeah <laughs> prove them wrong yeah i like that <laughs> But there we go. So though, that's where we are in OCR now. I won't keep you for much longer because we, we've been on a fair while. But where do you want to see OCR going? What do you see as the future of the sport? I would love to see, at least from the high level, um, kind of athletes able to have a career out of it with large mm. sponsors and good prize money. Um, we don't I don't think we need to have like a money or a race with money every weekend, but several throughout the year that has enough for people money. to live off. Yeah. Or at least like the top few um, to be able to survive off of as well as make it worth training for. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so difficult for athletes. I, I say this all the time. It seems to be one of my uh, sentences, but that people are expected to perform at elite athlete level without having the support to do so. Exactly. And you just can't like, that's no. just something you just, yeah. Elite athletes train very hard, but also are extremely lazy. That's just how it goes. You train hard and then recover <laughs> during the day. Um, and if you're not, you don't have the capacity to do that. Say you train hard and then go have to work either a manual labor job mm. or a job that has high stress or really challenges you thinking um, on the mental side. That's not recovery. So mm -hmm. if you think an athlete, like athletes will usually only train a max of a couple hours a day. Mm -hmm. 
and then just lays about the rest of the day watching TV, maybe get a massage, eat a ton of food, go to bed early. That sounds like a great life. It's a great life, but it's also not for everyone because you have to do it day in and out, day out. And then some days you wake up and you're like, this is horrible. I don't want to get out of bed, (laughs) but I got to go train because there's this big race coming up. Um, But yeah, so it is, it's kind of a a dichotomy of those two aspects. Um, Mm. Many people just can't afford to do that. And athletes need financial and um, social, familial, all of the support they can get to get themselves to the highest level. If you look at really high level athletes in other sports that have a lot of money, they'll have a team of like five to eight people. They'll have a masseuse. They'll have a personal trainer. They'll have their like training coach. They'll have a mental coach, um, a nutritionist. All of these people who basically run their lives for them mm-hmm. so they can just solely focus on getting to the peak physical condition they can be in. Yeah. And what, like you say, a lot of OCR athletes we see, they are living their lives. I mean, Rose Wetzel, I always go on about having a kid and, and being able to train and perform the way she does coming back from, I know her child's was seven or seven bit maybe. Um, so it's a fair while, but my child's six and I've still not quite recovered from it. Yeah. It's, it's a while. It's, it's a lot. And I know there are athletes who come back from that, but with a very concentrated, uh, you know, definite focus on it. And yeah, a lot of athletes, European athletes, I think a few of them have a bit more support. And again, this is a conversation I have had in the past between, you know, what's available to European athletes in terms of sponsorship, et cetera, but still not enough. You know, there are athletes who live with their parents because they can't afford to train and do all of this plus kind of live by themselves. Mm-hmm. It's there's a lot being asked of the athletes to do all of this. And it's not that they're just not very good. <laughs> it, they're still really great athletes as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I mean, they I see it as they could be better if like they didn't have a job in order to financially do what they need. Yeah. To help support them. Um, Absolutely. Or their training. So, yeah, it's that I would love to see that as well as uh growth in the federations and really helping support kind of their national communities um it would be fantastic if we get ocr in the olympics as just like what we see is the 3k or 15k on like a fun course that's dynamic and also has the viewership capabilities of Mm. the olympics so like (laughs) um i love ocr support but they don't have the funding or Mm. infrastructure to do what they need to sometimes um Mm is you would see like the IOC or any of the large broadcasters like NBC they'll be able to set up enough cameras to get whatever we want um yeah but the money that that's behind that is it's crazy yeah. it's, it's also like a chicken and egg situation like I've been pushing for years to tie in broadcasting with partnerships because the more we can uh the more we can offer partners the more money we can get and there always mm-hmm. seems to be a bit of a it's very difficult to get brands to invest in broadcast but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect it's like well but then if we get the partnerships and we pay for that and then we can get even more money then there's more money for athletes you know funding for the sport shouldn't come from open waivers buying tickets really you know the events could be almost free (laughs) It, it should come from outside because everything and as terrible and as boring as this is everything exists to sell a product everything is just an advertisement space and if we can get people to see what an advertisement space the sport is suddenly we'll have so much more money for everyone and everyone can have fun and athletes can compete and we can do much better broadcasting and media coverage and i would love that yeah that's what we all want that's the goal i mean athletes are advertising space when it also boils down to it yeah and their instagrams and all their social media so no, I, I agree. It's what I think it's progressing towards um, slowly. And I think it had to get smaller in order for that to happen. Um, yeah. I mean, COVID did no favors. We were, no we were doing so well. And then COVID happened and people were devastated. And yeah, we did a lot of um, referrals, which we weren't contractually obliged to do, et cetera. And uh then people kind of lost the, the the thrill for traveling a bit and going to events. Yeah. And it's, it really put a dampener on it. It's, it's difficult. Very much so. Yep. And that's, you see that across pretty much all sports and they're, they're coming out of it. It just, it, it takes time for something like that when the world shuts down for a couple of years. It's crazy, isn't it? 
Oh, well. It all comes back to COVID. It's, oh, it's always COVID's fault. We need to blame COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's for years, sucked. Oh, well. Um, well, thank you for joining me. I feel that kind of went off in 20 different directions, but it was great talking to you. A lot of fun. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever done an interview or podcast where it didn't go off in 20 different directions. So <laughs> I, They're I the best ones. Great. I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, and, you know, good luck with what's what are your next competitions, actually, by the way, before we before we close up? Uh, I'm going to really focus on taking baths. That sounds pretty great. And <laughs> being and running with my dogs. My nice. season is over, so I'm going to off season and rest and relaxation as well as house projects. So I have some stuff I need to get done before winter shows up. And Amazing. it's fast approaching as we got snow yesterday. So Ooh. Yeah, it's cold here. Coming back from very dry, hot California to very damp cold manchester my nose is very happy i'll say that because that was painful out there but otherwise oh, i'm dry i love dry oh, climates oh my god it was painful climate. i couldn't sleep i was always too i like i like it cold when i'm sleeping and yeah it was, it was dry and mm, hot yes. but never mind so yes winter's coming and yeah great well fantastic hopefully you know we see you back on the scene next year you know on this upward trajectory and that all your athletes are doing amazingly as well thank you yeah it was, thanks for having me my pleasure. <laughs> Bye. 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 Friend.